Well, good morning. Uh, before I speak to those of you who are in the room, I want to speak to those who are watching by television and s streaming. So I'm going to look right at that camera and hope that they get me. So in a few minutes here in this room, we're going to celebrate uh, communion. We're going to grieve and celebrate the death of Christ about which we've been singing. And uh, so I want you to, to do that with us. So I, you have a few minutes. I want you to go get a bread or crackers or whatever the closest you can find and juice or the closest you can find. If you're in the hospital room, say to the nurse, hey, hurry, I need to hit that red button over there and say, hey, I need some crackers in here real quick and get some juice wherever you are. So we're going to break away when, when we celebrate here in the room and uh, we're going to go uh, to an opportunity for you to celebrate at home. I usually say that during the greeting, but I was, uh, I was getting ready to come back in the room during that. So I hope uh, those, of you sh those of you who are part of our extended family will, uh, will celebrate with us here in a few minutes. So I want to alert you so you can get ready for that. We're going to read from the Gospel of Luke, the good news according to Luke, chapter 22. And we're going to read begin beginning at verse 14. We talked this morning about mystery in preparation for the grieving and the celebration together of the death of our Lord Jesus. Luke 22, beginning at verse 14. When the hour came, when the time was right, Jesus and his apostles, his missionary friends, reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you, the meal that uh, our Jewish friends still celebrate to this day. I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. They wouldn't yet understand what he was talking about. For I tell you, I will not eat again, eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And they must have been wondering. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Today we talk about mystery. Life is full of mystery. Leonard Sweet uh, talked about three of the great mysteries of life. Number one, he said, one of the great mysteries of life is that a, uh, a spotted animal can have a striped tail, but a striped animal can never have a spotted tail. That's one of the great mysteries of life, he said. Another great mystery is why a person with, the person with the smallest bladder always has the window seat uh, in, uh, in an airplane. That's a great mystery. And he said the third great mystery is God. God is indeed a mystery if we think about God as bigger than our boxes, as beyond our theories, as broader than our categories, as bigger than our imaginations. God is, God is mystery. But remember, mystery is not the absence of meaning. Dennis Covington said, in fact, mystery is not the absence of meaning. It is the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. Think about that. Mystery is the presence of more meaning than we can comprehend. So today we're going to talk about more meaning than our human minds can wrap themselves around. 
The first mystery is the mystery of the cross, of, of the death of Jesus. Now, it sounds simple enough to say Jesus died for our sins, but try explaining that to somebody who hasn't heard that all his life or her life. Try digging to put it into common words, what it means that Jesus died for our sins. And you'll quickly find that the death of Jesus is mystery. And so that's why for all these centuries, theologians, great Christian thinkers have tried to come up with, with theories to, to describe what happened on the cross, theories of, of the atonement, theories of what happened when Jesus gave his body and blood for us. And, and so I want to share four uh, of the more common uh, theories. Uh, first is the, uh, the moral influence theory. The moral influence theory says that when Jesus died, he died as an inspiration for us to love other people as he loved and a motivation for us to, to follow him. 1 Peter 2.21 reads, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. We sing that song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, which says, were the whole realm of nature mine, if I had all of nature, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So the moral influence theory says that Jesus died to give us this example of how to, how to live. Second is the, the Christ as victor theory. Colossians 2.15, and having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by uh, the cross. Jesus took on Rome when he died, the oppressive army that was occupying Jerusalem. And, and he demonstrated that the most powerful force on earth is not military might, but love. More importantly, he took on Satan and the powers of hell, and, and he broke their backs. You may have heard it described as as like D-Day. You know, in D-Day, in World War II, when we invaded Normandy, we broke the back of Nazi Germany. The, the, the war would continue, but the outcome became certain. And, and in the same way, when Jesus died, he, he made certain the outcome that will come when, when he returns. But in the meantime, he has broken the backs of, of the devil and his, and his demons. And when he, when he returns, that will all be clear. So there's the the moral in, by, by the way, we sing on Easter, we sing Christ the Lord is risen today, love's redeeming work is done, fought the fight, the battle won. That's the, that hymn reflects the Christ as victor theory. And then there's the ransom theory. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 1 Timothy 2, Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all people. Ransom and re redemption are two very similar words. In Jesus' day, and even in the dark chapter of, uh, of our American history called slavery, people could ransom or redeem slaves so they could go to a slave market and pay the price asked for that slave, all for the purpose of liberating that slave. So the ransom theory says that in a way that's beyond our understanding, Jesus paid it all. That's the hymn that reflects that theory. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe that he, by his death, he, he offered a redemption price for us. The fourth theory is the substitution theory. 1 Timothy 2.24, he took upon himself our sins in his body on the tree. The, the ransom, uh, excuse me, the substitute theory says that there is a moral law in the universe as certain as there are physical laws. One of the physical laws of the universe is that when an apple gets loose, it falls because of the law of gravity uh, to the earth. This substitution theory says there's a moral law as certain as that, and that moral law is that 
that wrong has to be righted and that sin has to be paid for and that somehow Jesus took upon himself our sin. The wages of sin is death and so he died and, and the Father sent the Son and the Son voluntarily, lovingly gave his life so that, so that he could be our substitute. We sing, till on that cross, this is in, in Christ alone, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. Every one of those theories has something to offer. Not one of them by themselves can encompass the mystery of the cross. In fact, in fact, even all together, they don't explain the mystery of what happened at Calvary. It's a, it's a mystery. And what we're going to celebrate here in a few minutes with the, with the wafers and the juice, the, some people call it the Lord's Supper, some call it communion, some call it Eucharist. That too is, is deep and beautiful mystery. And so people have tried to explain that too. There are three theories. I, I, I know this is not seminary, but this, this seems important. Three theories about what happens when we celebrate communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. One is uh, it's called transubstantiation. Trans, the prefix trans means to change or to come across. So if someone transfers from New Orleans to Huntsville, they've changed, they've come to a different place. Transubstantiation is the, is the idea that, that the body and blood of Jesus become, they are changed into the wafer and the juice, that the wafer and the juice actually become the body and blood of Jesus. That's transubstantiation. Consubstantiation, the prefix con means with, so that if two fl uh, rivers flow together or flow with each other, we call that confluence. And so consubstantiation says somehow the body and blood of Jesus come alongside or with the wafer and the juice that we will celebrate. And then the third one is symbol. You know, Baptists tend to fall in that category. Sorry about that, having a little trouble. That, that, that Baptists fall in the category of symbol, that the Lord's Supper is symbol. Not mere symbol, because that cheapens it, but symbol, that, that what we celebrate is, is symbolic, beautifully, mysteriously symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus. Now, there are good Christians who, who will disagree over transubstantiation or consubstantiation or symbol or some who've never heard of any or... 450 years, years ago, the first week of October of um, 1529, Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Luther met at a castle, Marburg Castle, near uh, Frankfurt, Germany. Now, they were two leaders of the early Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation was only 12 years old at this time. So Zwingli and Luther met with all their entourages to to debate communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. What is the meaning? Zwingli believed it was symbol, that it symbolizes the body and blood of Jesus. Luther didn't use transubstantiation or consubstantiation. He said that the body and blood of Jesus are present in the wafer and the wine. Now you might wonder, with all the problems in the world, why would they take a week to debate that. I get that, but people were deeply divided over that. For a week they met, October 1 through 4. At the end of the week, it was obvious they weren't going to agree. 
And so before they left and went their separate ways, Ulrich Zwingli extended his hand to Martin Luther as if to say, we can't agree on this, but we can be Christian brothers. Martin Luther withdrew, refused to extend his hand. Your, your spirit is different from my spirit, he said. Well, let me tell you, if, if you and I, people watching by TV or streaming, if we have different ideas about the specifics of what we're going to celebrate, man, we, we still can shake hands and be Christian brothers and sisters. This is mystery, and the fact that we might not all agree exactly what it means is, is understandable. This is, um, this is World Communion Day. So across the world and um, across the Tennessee Valley, people will celebrate with us. Across the world, uh, people will celebrate communion. And, and there'll be different understandings, different nuances, different understandings of the details. But we are, we're still Christian brothers and sisters. Now that doesn't mean you can believe whatever you want. I just feel like I have to be clear about that. Last Easter, for example, in the New York Times, the week before Easter, they interviewed a, the president of a seminary in, in New York. And um, one of her responses began, about, uh, uh, an interview about her beliefs, and one of her responses began, at the heart of faith is mystery. So far, so good. That's my point this morning. Unfortunately, she continued. But I don't worship an all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient being. That is a fabrication of Roman law theory and Greek mythology. She went on to deny the physical resurrection of Jesus and criticized, and I'm quoting her now, Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession. She said further, I find the virgin birth to be a bizarre claim. And to the question of what happens at death, she answered, I don't know. There may be something, there may be nothing. Now, you've heard me preach for five years, and I don't take pot shots at other churches and other denominations. I just don't. But it just seemed right to say there, that sometimes we stretch things beyond where I think the, the word Christian ought to be stretched. However, this morning we celebrate an essential. That even if we disagree on the details, the nuances, this is, we, we celebrate one of the essential essentials of what it means to be a Christian. Today, Christians around the world and across the Tennessee Valley will, will celebrate the fact that when Jesus died, mysteriously, mystically, he made it possible for us to be forgiven and born anew. And he made it possible for us to join God in his mission to the world as a partner with God himself. And he made it possible for us to enjoy life at its best here and life that never ends in heaven. I don't understand that, and that's bigger than any theory, but it's part of what makes us Christian. Sixteen times, I did a word search last night, sixteen times the, the Apostle Paul, God inspired the Apostle Paul to use the word mystery in his writings. Sixteen times, including Ephesians six nineteen, which speaks of the mystery of the gospel. As followers of Jesus, we, we do our best to understand the gospel and because we're imperfect, because we're mortals, because we, we see, to quote Paul, we see through a glass darkly. We, we have different denominations and 
even different camps within denominations because we, we, we just don't quite understand it. And when we get to heaven, I think we're, I think we're all going to find out that all of us were wrong about something. I just don't know what it is that I'm, I can't imagine me being wrong about something, but I, <laughs> I think it's probably going to happen when I get to heaven. Because we are mortals looking through a, a smoky glass at truth on the other side. And so we have different denominations and different camps within denominations. But this morning on World Communion Sunday, we celebrate that there are some essentials that draw us together. Bigger than theories, and bigger than statements of faith, bigger than confessions of faith, bigger than creeds. But that we are all in desperate need of grace so beautifully and powerfully demonstrated at the cross. Over a hundred years ago, Eliza Hewitt wrote, My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed, not in a confession of faith, not in a denomination, not in a statement of belief, we can say with her, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Hocest corpus meum. That's where hocus pocus comes from. People saw the Roman Catholic priest for years in Latin hold up that bread, dressed in majestic garb, removed from them physically. He would hold up that bread and he would say, hocest corpus meum. If you say it fast, sounds an awful lot like hocus pocus. And because it seemed so mystical, so magical that they, it, people began, began to associate that phrase with, with the art of magic. This is not magic. It's not a bunch of hocus pocus. But it is mystical. It is beyond our categories. It is beyond our creeds. And I need no other argument I need no other plea, as mystical as it is. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for you and for me. And so we're in grief together.